this space this morning. My name's Jamie, one of the pastors here. Excited to have you guys here with us this morning as we venture into uh, the official uh, summer months, as we even dive into uh, a new sermon series this morning that's going to carry us through these summer months, uh, a series entitled Cruciform, as you can see on the logo behind me. The word cruciform, it's kind of a weird word. We don't use it in our culture very much. Um, I doubt that you've thrown that word around in banter over a cup of coffee in recent history. Um, Many of us may not even know what that word means. If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, uh, the word cruciform simply means having the shape of a cross. And so this series title is, is a little bit of a play on words. Uh, as you and I embrace the fullness of that which was accomplished for us through the cross of Jesus Christ, we will find our very lives in incredibly, incredibly practical and life-giving ways shaped by the cross. As many of you have heard me say, uh, at certain points along the way, the cross is the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's multifaceted. As you spin a jewel, it shines with new brilliance and beauty. It's kind of like a stained glass window, which is why we decided to use this particular logo. A stained glass window refracts light so that as you stare into a stained glass window, if you move an inch to the left or, or the right, it radiates with a new beauty, a new brilliance that, that was not there before you moved that inch to the left or the right. The cross is the, the great light-refracting jewel of the Christian faith, you could say. And so the goal of this series is really simple. It's to, to spin the jewel, to see the radiance of that which Jesus has accomplished for us one facet at a time, and not simply so that we might better understand the doctrines associated with the various facets of the cross of Jesus Christ, but also that we might know what it truly is to have our lives shaped by each of these facets. In that regard, this series is incredibly practical. Here's kind of a layout of, of where I'm going to attempt to go week in and week out throughout this series. If we grab hold of what this series is meant to communicate, we will find our lives shaped by the cross doctrinally. As we grow in our understanding of the beliefs themselves, we will find our lives shaped by the cross personally or existentially as we grow in our understanding of how these beliefs matter in our own lives. We will find our lives shaped by the cross communally as we grow in our understanding of how these beliefs matter in our relationships with other Christ followers. And we will find our lives shaped by the cross missionally as we grow in our understanding of how these beliefs matter in our evangelistic efforts to point people to Jesus. And so you take big words that we're going to throw around for the next several weeks, words like propitiation and justification and adoption and reconciliation. And yes, we will walk away with a, a better understanding of what those words mean. But the hope is that even more so than that, that we would walk around understanding that when we wake up on a Monday morning, the word propitiation matters in the Christian life. The word justification matters in the Christian life for you and for me, for our relationships with each other, and for our evangelistic message. So that's where we're going with this series. With that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up this morning to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Very famous passage of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or uh, the translation that you own is a little difficult to track with, uh, please feel free to take that Bible with you as our gift to you. This is a topical sermon series, meaning that we're going to be all over the Bible this morning. 
as well as subsequent weeks in this series. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 will help in summarizing the heart of what we're after this morning, functioning as a launch pad for us. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in and get to work this morning. God, we live our lives presently in the context of a hyper-churched, under-gospeled subculture. And that means that words like gospel and cross oftentimes get muddied. And so I pray this morning that you would deconstruct whatever needs to be deconstructed in our minds and hearts as we think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Pray that those of us who have been walking and living with lives centered on the gospel for years would find ourselves encouraged that our lives are rooted in a creed, that we would not find ourselves bored and apathetic with the things that we discussed this morning, but would find ourselves overwhelmingly encouraged to know that these things have taken root in our lives. God, I pray that ultimately that the, the beautiful doctrines that flow from the cross of Jesus Christ would come to life in our lives, in our church, in this community. God, would you do that? Holy Spirit, we need you to awaken our minds, to awaken our slumbering hearts, and to move in our midst right now. So I ask you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul says very famously, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This brief passage of Scripture, just a handful of verses here, functions as one of the earliest creeds, one of the earliest confessions of the Christian church. It, it predates the Apostles' Creed. It predates the Nicene Creed. It predates the Chalcedonian Creed. It includes the doctrine of Jesus' pre-existence before the foundations of the world. It includes the doctrine of Jesus' incarnation, his becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It includes the doctrine of Jesus' obedient life, his death by crucifixion, his victorious bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. If you have any ambition to memorize Scripture, and I hope that you do, this is a fantastic passage to memorize. It's a passage saturated with pretty much everything you need to know about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you just heard me pray this. Let me stop here for a second and say it again. I... I I pray that you don't find our time together this morning boring. We're going to talk about a number of things that we've talked about in this church before because we are a gospel-centered church. I'm even going to bring back some quotes that you might have heard before in previous sermon series. But here's my reasoning. And you've heard me say this before, many of you. The first step toward abandoning the gospel is assuming the gospel. 
Aren't you glad that for 2,000 years the church has not assumed the gospel, but that we carry the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and the Creed of Philippians 2 with us 2,000 years later, that we still have a course on which we run? The first step toward abandoning the gospel is assuming the gospel, and so I don't want to assume anything this morning. It seems really unwise to me to, to immediately begin spinning the jewel to, to take a look at the first facet of the cross of Jesus Christ that's going to carry us into this series without talking about the cross of Christ in a broader sense. And it also seems unwise to me to talk about the cross of Christ without talking about the Christ of the cross. And so we're going to do both this morning. And if none of this is new to you, I hope, as you heard me pray, that you find yourself rejoicing that these truths have become the familiar creed of your very own life perhaps of your family, of your marriage, of your relationship with your children. So let's start with the Christ of the cross. Because the reality is our understanding of the cross of Christ matters very little if it's rooted in a misinformed understanding of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, we were, t- we're told, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There's a lot of confusion as to who Jesus was. Some even believe that he was demon-possessed. And Jesus said to them, we're told, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Arguably the most important question in all of the Bible, right here in Matthew chapter 16. In fact, every single pillar of Christian doctrine Every single theological concept comes back to Jesus. You can't study the doctrine of creation apart from Jesus because all things were created for him, through him, and by him. You can't study the doctrine of man apart from Jesus because you and I are made in his image. You can't study the doctrine of angelic beings apart from Jesus because angels minister to him and sing of his glory. You can't study the doctrine of demonic beings apart from Jesus because he is our victory over the powers of evil. You can't study the doctrine of salvation apart from Jesus because there is no salvation apart from him. You can't study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus because, as the Apostle Paul tells us, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. You can't study the doctrine of the church apart from Jesus because there is no body without the head who is Christ. You can't study the doctrine of the end times without Jesus because it is Jesus who will return to set all things right. You can't get away from Jesus. But who do you say that I am? To which Christians for a couple thousand years have declared, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ is eternal God, the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the incarnate word of God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and thus both fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. I want to stop for a second. Because I think that's really easy for us to hear and go, yeah, 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 got it. But the reality is, there's a lot of eternally significant doctrine in those last few statements that just came out of my mouth. Entire chapters of systematic theology books have been devoted to the content of those few statements that you just heard me make. Having to do with the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Coming back to Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul sums it up in one sentence. He says, though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. Here's the deity of Christ. That word form means the true nature of something, the true uh, shape of something. It means to possess all of the characteristics, all of the attributes, all of the qualities of something. In other words, Paul's saying here in Philippians 2, being in very nature God. John, in his gospel account, begins that gospel account with these words, very famous passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That Word, quote-unquote, that John is referring to, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was around before the foundations of the world, the eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient author of creation, Going back to our recent study of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God's glory. Similar to how we know the sun by virtue of its light and heat, so we know the glory of God by virtue of Jesus' radiance of that glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. That word imprint carrying with it this picture of an imprint made by a stamp, an exact representation uh, possessing all the characters, attributes, and qualities of God. In other words, Jesus is God made visible. We've talked about this before. If you want to know how God thinks, Look at how Jesus thinks in the scriptures. If you want to know how God feels, look at how Jesus feels in the scriptures. If you want to know how God acts, look at how Jesus acts in the scriptures. Hebrews 1.3, it should revolutionize the way we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel accounts. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. The author of Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not the God of deism. He didn't wind up the clock of human history and then check out on us. He has an ongoing role in governing the universe and keeping the universe from falling apart. And perhaps the two clearest, most concise biblical statements regarding the deity of Christ, both found in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9, he says it this way, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All the fullness of God, Paul says. The whole fullness of deity. Case closed, right? Not exactly. Some argue, maybe you've encountered this, maybe you bring this worldview into this room this morning, that though the Bible teaches Jesus to be God, Jesus himself never made that claim that Jesus impacted people's lives who then proceeded to deify him, but that ultimately Jesus saw himself as simply a good moral teacher. But that's, that's just not true. Jesus himself says he is much more than just a good teacher. Look, look at these verses behind me on the screen. This good teacher said that he was the son of God and that he is in the father. That's John chapter 10, verses 36 through 39. This good teacher said that he was God. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64. This good teacher said he was sinless. John chapter 8, verse 46. 
This good teacher told us to pray to him as God. John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. This good teacher claimed to be able to forgive people's sins. Matthew chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. This good teacher claimed to be able to grant people eternal life. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. This good teacher said he's the only way to heaven. John chapter 14, verse 6. And this good teacher claimed that if you've seen him, you've seen God the Father. John chapter 14, verse 9. So that, we're told in John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, answered Jesus, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Coming back to the C.S. Lewis quote that comes out to play at least once a year around here. So here you go. This is your 2018 version. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. Which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That it, it's actually more honest, more intelligent, more academic to say that Jesus was the David Koresh, the Jim Jones of his day, than to say that he was simply a good moral teacher. It's actually more honest, more intelligent, more academic to say that Jesus is the greatest liar to have ever walked planet earth than to say that he was a great moral teacher and nothing more. The Bible emphatically declares the deity of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself emphatically declares his own deity. But the Bible doesn't just speak of the deity of Christ. The Bible also declares that Jesus is eternal God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Coming back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped in the original language means, carries with it this idea of taking advantage of or exploiting. That rather than exploit his kingly glory, rather than take advantage of his kingly glory, he set aside the scepter and the crown, leveraging his life into an act of humble sacrificial love by stooping down and entering into our story. Philippians 2.7 goes on to say, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, which doesn't mean that he became less than God. The incarnation is not an act of subtraction. It's an act of addition. Jesus added a second nature, a human nature, to his divine nature. Gregory of Nazianzus says it this way, very simply, remaining what he was, which is fully divine, he became what he was not. Fully human. It's where theologians uh, come to this language of the doctrine of the hypostatic union, the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is not two persons, he is one person, yet in the one person of Jesus Christ, both natures, human and divine, exist. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, he says this, this is probably the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. The eternal son of God, himself fully God, became fully man, and in doing so, joined himself to a human nature forever. We're talking about a real human body, so that Jesus grew and became strong. Luke chapter 2 verse 40 tells us. Jesus became tired at times. John chapter 4 verse 6 tells us. Jesus experienced thirst. John chapter 19 verse 28 tells us. Jesus experienced hunger. Matthew chapter 4 verse 2 tells us. But not just a real human body, but also a real human mind and real human emotions. So that we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 Jesus spoke of his sorrowful soul, Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Jesus wept at the death of his dear friend Lazarus, John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. By the way, let me just stop here. If you're one of those people who tries to copy everything on the screen, I'm sorry this morning. I just apologize to you, okay? Um, If you want notes, shoot me an email and I'll send you the notes Uh, Or you can go back and listen to the podcast and try to catch all this later. In his real human body, with his real human mind and emotions, we're told that Jesus experienced real human temptation. We talked about this in the Hebrews series as well. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows everything we experience in our humanness. He was tempted just like you and me, yet sinless through it all. He's able to sympathize with us and offer us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Another way we could say it, because Jesus is fully human, he can enter into our sorrows with us as a sympathizer. And because he is fully divine, he has the power to lead us through those sorrows. And that makes the Christian worldview incredibly unique in the face of all other worldviews. The Bible emphatically declares both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. George Herbert, the English poet, summed up the the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ with these simple words. He said, in Christ, two natures met to be thy cure. That's Christology wrapped up in a sentence. When we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about the crucifixion of a a good moral teacher, someone who died to show us an example of what sacrificial love is. We're talking about the crucifixion of God having come in the flesh. That's the biblical Christ of the cross. But what what about the cross of Christ? After all, this series is entitled Cruciform, Shaped by the Cross, So what can we say about the cross of Jesus Christ? The the cross is is not just the focus of this sermon series, by the way. It's the focus of much of what you find in the gospel accounts. Did, Did you know that when you read the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that roughly one third of their content is devoted to the final week of Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection? In fact, John's gospel account devotes roughly half of its content to that one week, though Jesus lived for a little over three decades. 
The gospel accounts are an emphatic declaration that Jesus came to die. He was born to die. And not just any death, a humiliating death by crucifixion. Coming back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The crucifixion, it was invented by the Persians uh, about 500 years before Jesus entered onto the scene. It was perfected by the Romans so that, and, and this is key, listen to me here, because uh, this is going to be important for us even moving into this series. When we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we're not simply talking about a doctrine, but a fact. Let me say that again. When we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we're not simply talking about a doctrine, but a fact. Another way we could say it, the cross is not only theological, but historical. Something actually happened in human history. The, the multifaceted jewel of the cross is mounted in the setting of first century Palestine. Jesus of Nazareth died on a splintered Roman wooden cross outside the city of Jerusalem. In Jesus' case, his suffering began long before his crucifixion. If you're familiar with the story, the Bible tells us that in the agony of his impending death in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood. It's a medical condition known as hematidrosis, in which severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down capillaries in the sweat glands, causing one to sweat drops of blood. That such a condition would have caused Jesus' skin to become incredibly fragile and sensitive by the time the flogging began. Roman floggings... Historians tell us usually consisted of roughly 39 lashes. The weapon of choice was known as a cat of nine tails, a whip made of braided strands of leather. Within each strand were metal balls that would tenderize the skin like we tenderize a steak. At the end of each strand were shards of bone and metal which would rip flesh and muscle away from bone, exposing tendons, organs, sometimes even the spine. It's not surprising at all that the prophet Isaiah would describe the coming Messiah in these words. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. There was the crown of thorns that, were, uh, that was pressed into his head. His blood and sweat flowed down his face and into his eyes. His hair and beard likely a bloody matted mess. At this point, most scholars agree that Jesus would have suffered from what's known as hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning low, emic meaning blood. Hypovolemic shock is a condition in which a person suffers from a large amount of blood loss so that the heart races to pump blood that is not there. The blood pressure drops, causing a person to faint or collapse, which makes sense of why Jesus had to have someone carry his cross up the hill for him. The kidneys stop producing urine to try to maintain fluid in the body, which causes thirst as the body seeks to replenish fluids, which helps to explain Jesus' experience of thirst on the cross. And this is just a precursor. We haven't nailed him there yet. In the nailing of Jesus to the cross, the Romans used five to seven inch metal spikes similar to a railroad spike. These spikes were driven in through the wrists, had they driven the spikes through the palm, the weight would have caused the skin to tear and Jesus would have fallen from the cross. The wrists were considered part of the hand in the language of that day. The nails would have been driven through the median nerve, the largest nerve extending to the hand. That nerve would have been crushed. There was no existing word to describe that kind of pain, so we created one. In our language, it's the word excruciating. X means out of, cruci. Crucifixion means the cross. 
out of the cross is what the word excruciating means. Nails were driven through Jesus' feet in a similar manner. As he hung on the cross, his arms would have been stretched out so far that both shoulders would have become dislocated, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm chapter 22, which says that the Messiah's bones would be out of joint. Once nailed to the cross, the the victim essentially dies a death, uh, a slow death by asphyxiation as the chest is essentially forced into an inhaled position. And in order to exhale, the person must push up his or her feet to release tension on the muscles and, and the diaphragm, which would cause the nail to tear through the feet. It would also force the victim to run his or her back up the splintered wood of the cross. The victim would eventually experience what's known as respiratory acidosis. As breathing slows down, carbon monoxide in the blood is dissolved into carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase, which leads to an irregular heartbeat, which ultimately leads to death. In the words of some scholars, Jesus literally died of a broken heart. Let me just stop here for a second and say this. I've said it before. You cannot make the gospel hip. You cannot make the gospel cool because at some point you have to mention the slaughtering of the Son of God. You have to talk about the crucified Jesus, which begs the question, where is the good news in the cross of Christ? We're talking about a shameful, violent death. Crucifixion was considered the most horrific of deaths. It was reserved for lower class individuals, especially slaves in Jesus' day. The Roman philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens not talk about crucifixion. It was considered to be too disgraceful a subject, in his words, for the ears of decent people. And rightly so. It was a wretched, disgusting, awful way to die. So, Why is it not bizarre for us to adorn our necks and our homes with crosses? How how has the symbol of the cross become the most popular symbol of our day? In the words of Donald McLeod in his book, Christ Crucified, he says it this way. He says, Muslims may glory in the teaching of their prophet. Christians glory in the death of theirs. Is that not bizarre? We glory... In the death of Jesus Christ. Why is that not crazy? And most of us know the answer. It's because Jesus' death accomplished something that no other death in all of human history has ever accomplished, right? In his death, Jesus was dealing with the greatest dilemma that the world had ever known. Namely, the question of how God could be merciful towards sinners without cheapening his perfect justice. How does God's mercy and forgiveness not call into question his righteous reputation? How does he keep from becoming just another corrupt judge who's willing to sweep crimes under the rug? And the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Many of you have seen this passage before in this space. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, listen to this, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That the cross of Jesus Christ is the only way that God can forgive sinners without sacrificing his justice on the altar of his mercy. 
the cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy and justice of God collide as God is able to vindicate his righteous reputation by punishing Jesus for our sin. We, we talked about this on Good Friday. As Jesus hung on a splintered Roman wooden cross, he was bearing the judgment of God under the darkened skies of Jerusalem. The very one who, on two separate occasions in Mark's gospel account, had been declared to be the Father's beloved, now the Father's forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus had been involved in this dance with God the Father and God the Spirit since before time began. And for the first time since before the, the foundations of the world, Jesus found himself separated from that dance, bearing the judgment that should have fallen on you and me. We sing about it from time to time. In our place condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. This perfect, covenant-keeping, sinless Jesus died in the place of imperfect, covenant-breaking sinners. It's where we get the, the beautiful doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus bore the penalty and punishment for our sin in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. John Stott summarizes it really well in his book, The Cross of Christ, where he says this. He says, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. That's what makes the, the shameful, humiliating, horrific death of Jesus good news. He died so that God might be vindicated and glorified and so that you and I might be justified, reconciled, adopted, redeemed. Again, various facets of the one and same jewel of the Christian faith. And we're gonna look at all of those facets I just mentioned and a few more and hopefully bring them to life over the course of the months of June and July as we spin the jewel and see the radiance of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. But I wanna close this morning with something I think is critical, a reminder that is unbelievably basic. Just go ahead and throw that out there now. Incredibly basic, but something that we all too easily forget. In fact, there's a high likelihood that you'll forget it tomorrow. To use the language of our church's doctrinal statement, the cross of Jesus Christ is not only theological and historical, but also intensely personal. Let me say that again. The cross of Jesus Christ is not only theological and historical, but also intensely personal. John Murray, in his great work entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied, one of the best books that's been written on the cross, he says this, he says, God was pleased to set his invincible and everlasting love upon a countless multitude. And it is the determinate purpose of this love that the atonement secures. What I want you to, to walk away overwhelmed by this morning is the fact that you are one of the countless multitude. You're one of the countless multitude. God was pleased to set his invincible and everlasting love, to use Murray's words, upon you. 
to use the language of Scripture. You, you can take some of the plural pronouns that you find in the Bible and you can insert yourself in and you begin to see things like this. But God shows his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. In this is love, not that you have loved God, but that he loved you and sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought you peace, and by his stripes you are healed. It's one thing to believe that God so loved the world. It's an altogether different thing to swim in the deep, deep waters of Jesus loves me, this I know. And so let me just close with a question this morning and ask, when was the last time that you meditated on the deep, deep love that Jesus has for you? There is no deeper theology than Jesus loves me, this I know.